We're going to do something a little bit different, and that is for a few minutes, we're going to have a chance to hear from Pastor uh, Paul Baraka, who is also the head of Fellowship International Missions, and I'll talk about that more in just a minute. And then we're going to go into a, ser- a series very short series. We're going to do some today and we'll do some next week on Advent. And that is a way for those of you that maybe didn't grow up in a Catholic church or a Lutheran church to learn about Advent. For those of you, it would be a refresher course. And uh, especially since the church this year has really been uh, lighting Advent candles, I wanted to use that. And there's also some material I'm going to be reading from a very good book, which I mentioned last week by the current president of Dallas Theological Seminary, which is Mark Yarborough. And so I think you will appreciate that. I know we won't have a chance to cover all of that, so you will see on the handout some of the readings that if I don't get to today, I will do next week. And I think you will find that to be very helpful. But first of all, if you are not familiar, Paul Barak is again the head of Fellowship International Missions. One of their missionaries actually sat right here. You might remember Samuel and Patience, and we're going to have a picture of them. Give us an update on that. If you listen to my radio program, he was in studio with us on Thursday talking about the uh, plight of the persecuted Christians around the world and also what is happening in Nigeria. So we're going to talk about that for just a minute. And I certainly want to welcome him up here. So Paul Baraka, come on up here. I'll let you do the honors of introducing your wife as well. Thank you so much, Kirby. And Kim is right here. Can you stand up if you remember Kim? That is great. She, so we've been in uh, Texas land for a week and attending a conference, a theological conference, and visiting some of our support partners throughout uh, the Dallas metro area and just enjoying ourselves very, very much. So we first met Kirby and Suzanne when I invited Kirby to speak on apologetics at our church in New Jersey. Now, our church in New Jersey was a mega church for South Jersey. We had 400 people, which probably could all fit right in here in the balcony. But that's a big church in Jersey and uh, not uh, as large as Prestonwood, obviously. And Kirby and Suzanne came out, and we got to talking about uh, our shared love and interest in Israel. And Kirby and Suzanne had not been to Israel, and Kim and I had done a tour, so we organized our first tour to Israel. I think it was in 2012. I think that's when we went. I'm not sure. I think that's sometime around there. And had such a great time, and some of you were with us and went back again, and, and uh, we have another uh, trip. This time, not to Israel. I had a trip, not with Kirby and Suzanne. I had a hiking trip scheduled in March, but uh, Israel has been very, very restrictive on immigration and tourism. It has really wrecked havoc with their economy, uh, but nonetheless, that's uh, their uh, approach to that, and so we had to cancel that trip. We are going to Greece and uh, Ephesus, of course, Ephesus in the country of Turkey. I should say Ephesus and Greece. We're going to go in the third week of September. That's a tentative date, and we're looking at about, a, uh, about an 11-day trip, and it is a Bible study tour. So if you can imagine, you know, I know you're here because you enjoy Kirby's Bible teaching. Just imagine hearing uh, Kirby present the life of Paul from the city of Ephesus or speaking about the book of Titus from the island of Crete or talking about the, the Apostle John from the island of Patmos. And we'll be visiting all of those biblical places. The tour is actually called The Footsteps of Paul and John. 
because of those places that we're going to be going to. So just a fantastic time. We will end up in Corinth. And uh, then because we like nice things, we're going to take a couple of days and go to one of those Greek islands and spend a little time there. So that's uh, something coming up. So uh, some of our examined class may be interested in that. I'm sharing because I see a lot of faces that we've not seen before here in your class. And it is just great to meet you and to connect with you and to share with you. If you go to the next slide, uh, my ministry at Fellowship International is really based on Psalm 96, verse 3. Declaring God's glory among the nations. FIM is a international mission agency, and we do kind of three things, and uh, they'll be up here in just a second. The three things we do is to engage with people that are interested in becoming a missionary. So we go to college campuses, and we uh, have, of course, a website and, and talking to people that are interested in serving in a different mission capacity. FIM has missionaries serving in over 30 countries, and they're doing all kinds of things, some doing medical missions, some doing church planting and evangelism, some doing uh, Christian school teaching, but all of them with the goal of using that uh, opportunity that they have or that skill that they have or that business that they may be running, doing it for the purpose of sharing the gospel. Uh, so when we have someone doing a medical clinic, it's not just the medical aspect. It's making sure that they're doing that for the opportunity to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we partner with those missionaries and their churches. And uh, much like other mission agencies do, we uh, take care of some of the service aspects that a local church may not be well equipped to do, such as things about immigration or field security or taxes that relate to living overseas and those kinds of issues. And so we partner with those missionaries and their churches. And then when that missionary gets to the field, we care for them. Uh, we visit with them. That's one of the things that I do frequently is travel to uh, all of these countries where our missionaries are and visit with them. And we get a much better idea of how they're doing and how we can better serve them when we see them face to face. So uh, that is uh, what we were doing. And that led me to a trip to um, Nigeria. And uh, two of our missionaries to Nigeria were Samuel and Patience. And so after my trip to Nigeria, we were coming here to Prestonwood and, and uh, coming to the examine class. And you know, they had some, Samuel had some real medical challenges. He had had kidney disease and was recovering. He had come to the Dallas area to attend DTS and earned his Ph.D. with the idea of going back to Nigeria to establish a seminary in the rural south of Nigeria. And while he was here, developed kidney disease, and it hindered his ability to go back and uh, they didn't have a church they had kind of had a, a difficult time finding a church and I said hey we're going to be at Prestonwood why don't you come to Sunday school class well you guys just embraced them and fell in love with Samuel and patience and and as his as their director of course well I'll get to that part of the story in just a second but uh, on behalf of FIM thank you for loving Samuel and patience uh, they truly love uh, your your class and the relationships they established here. Um, and by God's grace, Samuel and patience, Samuel recovered well enough to go back to Nigeria. And you know the story well. He wasn't there two months, uh, came down sick, and went home to be with the Lord. Uh, so that was the end of that vision for Samuel for the seminary. 
And uh, sometimes we don't understand God's timing in these things, right? All of these years preparing, and then he finally gets there. Uh, but the Lord took him to glory. Um, I, I'm, I'm here to share with you, though, that God's work in Nigeria still continues. And uh, just again, thank you for your, uh, your help with uh, Samuel and Patience and the many uh, aspects of love that you shared them with them, friendship and financial support and uh, the love you shared with them. These are some pictures of some of, uh, oh yeah, one more thing, I forgot about this slide. One of the other things that I have the privilege of doing is going and teaching at Bible colleges, some in the U.S. This is two weeks ago at Word of Life Bible Institute in Scroon Lake, New York. I was teaching the pastoral epistles to the sophomore class, and uh, uh, I do that both here in the U.S. and overseas as well. And that brings us to Nigeria. These are some pictures of very recent attacks in Nigeria. Uh, how many of you listened in to Point of View on Thursday as we were talking about Nigeria? Just a few of you. So uh, this may be a little repeat for, for you guys, but we weren't able to go in, into as much depth. Of course, uh, radio goes by pretty fast, Kirby, as you're talking. We say the fastest 60 minutes in, uh, in radio. Uh, but uh, this is, uh, take, these, these events are taking place in Nigeria. These are some burnt out homes. I had some more graphic pictures. Uh, I'll spare you those pictures, uh, but you can imagine with this kind of destruction uh, also comes the loss of life. And in a nutshell, what's happening in Nigeria? Nigeria is going through a second stage of terrorism. Back in the early 2000s, Boko Haram, an Islamic terrorist group, was particularly targeting Christians. And they did some very, very horrific things. One I was in one church in the city of Jos. I'll show you where that city is in a minute. I was in one church where back in 2002, the Boko Haram broke into the, they broke down the gates. Of course, uh, the churches were closed with, you know, the people would come in and then they would close the gates, right? Well, the Boko Haram broke through the gates. They chained the doors shut. They threw grenades through the windows, firebombed the church, locked the Christians inside. 350 Christians were killed. This is back in 2002 uh, with attacks from Boko Haram. I was in that church, of course, many years later after it was rebuilt and, and finding the Christians worshiping and strong in their faith. Now the second wave is with a group of nomadic herdsmen called the Fulani. And the Fulani range throughout Western Africa, Central and Western Africa, and they bring their cows and, and, and herd, and, and they just kind of like, they're, they're nomadic, they just kind of travel. Well, they're, the, as the desert uh, is spreading further further south, they're uh, looking for more and more green places to go. So they are moving further south, and what they're doing is they're specifically targeting Christian communities, Christian pastors, Christian leaders, and there is a wave of attacks going on in Nigeria um, from the Fulani, particularly against Christians. Uh, you've not heard about that in the news. Uh, there are hundreds of attacks with thousands that have been killed. Right now, they estimate there are about 50,000 people just in one state of, of kind of like, you know, whatever, Texas or Pennsylvania. Just in one state of Nigeria, there are 50,000 displaced persons in camps because their homes have been destroyed. And they don't just go in and, and kill the leaders and the pastors, uh, they, they burn the crops as well. So there's no sustenance for these Christians. It's not in the news, 
A couple of weeks ago, the uh, Biden State Department removed Nigeria from a list of groups that are hurting people and, and limiting religious freedom, which was a terrible thing to do because the persecution in Nigeria is increasing and not decreasing. This is Nigeria, as you can see where it is, kind of in that uh, central part. And, and if you, as you think of Africa, most of North Africa is Muslim, with many of those being Islamic states. And South Africa, can go back to that previous one just for a second. South Africa tends to be more a um, uh, more Christian or at least Christian in uh, in name uh, as opposed to the north. And and you can see Nigeria is right between the two. But not only that, now let's go to the actual slide of Nigeria. Nigeria itself is divided between the Muslim north and the quote unquote Christian south. And you'll see two cities there. The one in the center is Abuja. That's the capital of the country. And then to the, um, oh, the two o'clock or so of Abuja is Jos. And uh, those places, those cities are right on the, what's called the middle belt. And this is where these attacks are taking place. We have missionaries who were serving at a seminary right between uh, the road going between Abuja and Jos. And we're able to uh, see the Lord doing many things. This one seminary, and uh, let's see, I think the next picture, yeah, the, here it is, Equa Theological Seminary. may not look like much, but there are 700 seminary students studying, and they are being trained as pastors to go back into their country and reach people with the gospel. What a powerful thing. Uh, not only are they training them in theology, but because these pastors are going to have to go and work a, an income, what they had found is that so many of the pastors would be trained theologically, but then they wouldn't be able to provide for their families and they would quit. So at this seminary, they're also giving them life skills like carpentry or farming or agriculture or any number of other uh, welding or something else to help them earn a living so that they can preach, but also provide for their families. And uh, the fellow that we had with us on the radio is on the right there. That's Dennis Shelley, Ph.D., uh, and was teaching at the seminary. This was one of the classes I had an opportunity to teach with Dennis and share. And I asked these five guys. This was a fourth year class, a smaller class. And they were uh, this was a homiletics class that were learning preaching. And so we were talking to them about that. And, of course, the class is all in English, Nigeria, a former British colony, so the primary language or the official language is English. And I said, how many of you know someone in your family or a personal friend that has died or suffered attack from the Fulani? All five shared stories. And that's pretty much the situation throughout that seminary. Now, the Fulani attacks have grown so severe in that area that they were, they had learned of specific targeted attacks or threats against that particular school, Equa Theological Seminary. So they had to shut it down, send the students home. Try doing remote when you have no internet or when it's very, very difficult to get internet. So they're trying to do that. They're trying to operate remotely, uh, but it's, it's difficult and it's challenging. And the one thing that impresses me so much about our Nigerian brothers and sisters and really all of those who face persecution is their zeal for the gospel. In spite of the threats, and, and they know the severe threats that there are for sharing their faith, uh, in spite of the challenges, their fervor to share the gospel is 
grows stronger and stronger as the opposition grows stronger. Boy, wasn't that message this morning powerful? Oh, man. Praise the Lord for, for that message. There is a battle going on. We, we sense it, of course, right? In America, we sense the, the spiritual, cultural battle. But I want to remind you that our brothers and sisters, not only is it a spiritual, cultural battle, uh, many of them in places like Nigeria are physically suffering for their faith. And it brings to mind uh, to me a verse, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3. And it says this, Pray for those who were in prison as though you were in prison with them. Pray for those who suffer for the gospel, for we are all part of one body. And that verse is often a verse that's used about prison ministry. But realize this, the Christians who were in prison that the author of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews chapter 13, those are people who were in prison because of their faith. And the scripture there reminds us to pray for those who are in prison and remember them. So for you and me, I think that this is a, a message that you will frequently, of course, hear from Kirby and other Christian leaders. You'll hear it from uh, Brother Jack. You're, you'll, you'll hear it here at Prestonwood. Uh, praying for the persecuted church. Uh, we need to remember our brothers and sisters in Christ. When possible, we need to give to their relief and to their comfort. And uh, just be uh, reminded of their zeal for the gospel. One final thing about this seminary. I met with the missions director of EQUA. And this is one denomination, right? Uh, this is about 10 million Christians in Nigeria. And in this one denomination, they have a missionary program. And they have... 1,900 missionary couples. These are Nigerians who are committed to go to the more dangerous part of North Nigeria to bring the gospel to their fellow Nigerian brothers and sisters. They even have Equa missionaries going into Europe. And believe it or not, they have Equa missionaries coming to the United States. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> we think that, you know, we're the missionary senders, but praise the Lord, uh, there is a missionary movement going uh, going on from those countries that were once missionary recipients, they are now sending missionaries. And I stood with his brother in his office and I realized, wow, I have about 150 missionaries. They have 1,900 and they are going to the most difficult, dangerous places. Places that, as a mission leader, I probably would not send an American family or an American couple. But our Nigerian partners are doing it with great boldness for the gospel. Remember to pray for them. Uh, remember our brothers and sisters around the world suffering. Uh, because as it says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, we are all part of one body. So, Kirby, thank you for the opportunity to remind us once again about what God is doing around the world. Thank you. Wasn't that good? And if nothing else should uh, really encourage you. And uh, if you have a Bible, maybe turn with me to Hebrews 13 for just a minute, because I thought before we get into our next uh, uh, message, we might just recognize again. Uh, Hebrews 13, verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. And we recognize that these believers are in the body of Christ with us as well. And so let me pray and then we'll get into the rest of our message. Father, we just thank you for uh, Paul and Kim. We thank you for Fellowship International Missions. We thank you for the fact that this month is mission emphasis here at the church. And we pray that we might be diligent to pray. 
We might be diligent to give, and maybe some might even be diligent enough to follow your lead and to go. And we thank you for that. And we do pray for our brothers and sisters who, as they may gather today, uh, do not enjoy the kind of safety that we enjoy. And we pray for them in the midst of their persecution. And so we thank you for this great opportunity and pray your blessings upon the rest of our morning and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's, if we can, maybe talk a little bit about Advent, and this will be a series that I'll pick up again next week. And uh, it is something that may be familiar for some of you that have grown up in a liturgical church. Sometimes we say Advent. What is that? Where did it come from? And then I thought, uh, in the interest of time, maybe I'll just read uh, maybe two stories or three stories out of this uh, very interesting and very well-written book by Dr. Mark Yarbrough, who is the president of Dallas Theological Seminary. So when we talk about Advent, what is it? Well, again, this is a season of a time in which we're looking forward to, again, the remembrance of the birth of Jesus Christ. And so it starts on that fourth Sunday before Christmas, leads up to that. But if you, as you'll find out in just a minute, look at the history of Advent, it was not only the advent of the first coming of the Lord, but also the advent of the second coming. Now, where does the word Advent come from? Well, it comes from the Latin Adventus, which essentially is a translation of the Greek word Parousia, which you have find once or twice in the Greek Septuagint, but you certainly find it in the New Testament. And it's the idea of, again, the arrival. And so these are pointing to the coming of Christ. And so Advent has been something that has been practiced for some time. Where it started is a little harder to nail down, but is certainly we can see that one of the first mentions of that shows up in the Council of Sargosa. That's in 380 AD, as you can see on the screen there. Now, what they were dealing with at the time was a heresy known as Priscillianism which is a long word for basically it was one of the Gnostic heresies. You might remember the Gnostics had this idea that the body is evil and the spirit is good. And so as a result, this idea that our physical bodies were not good. And so those who were gathered together thought, well, one of the best ways to counter this idea that the body is not good is to talk about and memorize and to commemorate the time in which God, what? became man and took on human flesh, the so-called incarnation. So we do read that they suggested and encouraged individuals that uh, would be then celebrating Advent. Now, at that time, it was from December 17th to the 29th by attending church once a day. So that's how Advent actually might have been implemented at that time. If you look at this, what's so interesting is originally Advent was divided into two categories. The first was, of course, looking at the incarnation. I've got a slide there of the fact that God became man born in a manger. That whole story, of course, that we know. And then the second was the second coming. I appreciate Pastor Graham talking about the second coming today. You don't hear very many messages on Revelation 12 during Christmas, as he points out. But again, it is a reminder that with the first coming, we also talk about the advent towards the second coming. So originally, they used to divide it into two weeks on the incarnation and two weeks on the second coming of Christ. And I think there is certainly great biblical merit to that as well. 
Before I read just a couple of stories that uh, come from uh, this particular devotional put together by Mark Yarborough, I might answer some other questions, because if you've been around any length of time, you probably have seen what's called the Advent Wreath. And that is something that is used as a way to illustrate the Advent. The circle of the wreath, having no beginning, no end, kind of emphasizes, of course, the eternality of God. Uh, the immortality of the soul, and of course, even the idea of our eternal life in Christ. So you see that in terms of the Advent wreath. But we probably most often think of the Advent candles, and we have that actual lighting of the third candle today. And I'm going to use the traditional one where the three candles are purple, one is pink, although I think the one we lit today looked red, I think. But, you know, I don't, but again, let's give you kind of the history. Because the fourth can, four candles are looking at the four weeks of Advent. And one is lit every Sunday. And we've been following this here at Prestonwood. Now, three of the candles, as I illustrated, are purple. Why purple? Well, purple is kind of a liturgical color. It's also sort of a regal color. Matter of fact, uh, now we can produce purple pretty easily. But if you went with a, had a purple robe, that means you were very wealthy because the way you were to extract that were from very small shells. And so that was certainly the idea. But again, it's a liturgical color, which has been used oftentimes in many liturgical churches as a time of prayer, of penance, even sacrifice. Let's work our way through each one of the candles. The first candle, which is purple, symbolizes hope and is sometimes called the prophecy candle. Today I'll try to read from a piece in uh, Isaiah, uh, which again foretold the birth of Christ. And so this first candle, which we actually lit a couple of weeks ago, was looking ahead to the coming Messiah and the anticipation of it. So that's the first candle and it's purple. The second candle is the candle that uh, represents what's oftentimes called the Bethlehem candle. And that is a reminder of Mary and Joseph's journey to Bethlehem. Now, I'm going to ask for a hand, show of hands, but I think quite a number of you this week saw the chosen, the Christmas film on the messengers. How many saw that? Okay, and you might remember that they put into that Mary and Joseph actually it um, first of all, has Mary on a donkey. Maybe she was on a donkey, maybe not. But if you look at Luke 2, verse 4, we're not sure that she wasn't a donkey. But even if she was, this is a long journey. Because as the crow flies, it's about 70 miles. But if you look at the uh, curves that had to be taken, it was probably about 90 miles to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem. That'd be like, okay, you're ready to start walking to Tyler, also, you have to put some hills there because it's still... Can you imagine walking to Tyler? Now, some of us that backpack 20 miles a day, that's about as good as you're going to do. Well, you figure out 20 miles a day times four, that's 80 miles, you're still not there. So that's why many people think it probably was four or five days why she's pregnant, those of you women can think about pregnancy, just think about what that was like. So again, that is that second candle, which is the journey to Bethlehem. Third candle, though, is pink. And that symbolizes the idea of joy because that's oftentimes referred to as the shepherd's candle. And it's pink because that's kind of the liturgical core a color for joy. And then the final candle, which will be next week, is oftentimes called the angel candle to recognize the idea of the angel showing up. 
Now, if you've been to the gift of Christmas, we have angels flying in, don't we? It's a pretty amazing. And there are some people that just can't even imagine that we do that. But nevertheless, again, the angels, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And so that's a little bit of the history of Advent. But what I thought I would do is maybe uh, take a little bit from a book I would highly recommend because it is certainly very biblical. Uh, sometimes the sad reality is when we celebrate Advent, we add a lot of the traditions of men with the Word of God. And this one, I think it really tries to bring us back to this. There's 25 short devotionals. I'm not going to do 25 today. Yes, we're going to get out in time for uh, lunch. But again, it was an attempt to really help us begin to think about biblical ideas um, and to maybe focus more on the Messiah, less on cultural Christianity. And so, in the interest of time, even though there were quite a number of passages from the Old Testament, I'm going to skip the first one or two. Uh, one of those is, uh, kind of interestingly enough, it's called the Serpent Stomper. And Pastor Graham talked about this. I love Mark Yarbrough because he's kind of a rancher, and he talks about one time jumping out of a pickup truck, and all of a sudden he hears a... And he realizes there's a rattlesnake somewhere, and he realizes it's under his feet. And so, um, just as it says in Genesis of crushing the head, he decided he'd use his boots to crush the head. But we'll skip that one. I'll skip the one on Abraham because Pastor Graham did a pretty good job of talking about that. And jump to a passage, since Pastor Graham took a passage you don't normally think about for Christmas, Revelation 12. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 1. Because you don't necessarily think of that as being Christmas. And he says, you know, I spent a significant part of my life around death. I pulled calves from their dying mothers, shot steers with broken legs, fought for lambs from the mouths of coyotes and buried faithful family pets. Because I'm a pastor, I've spent many moments with a follower of Christ watching them pass from this life to the next. I've been with grieving families saying goodbye to a loved one ridden with disease and with a young mother gripped with pain and the loss of a new life due to miscarriage. It's never pretty. Death is horrid. He goes on in some detail because he says that now we come to death is no more obvious than in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus was revealed by God through Moses as an instructional guide to the tribe of Levi, the tribe designated by the Lord to serve as the priest for the nation of Israel. The beginning of Leviticus gave a gory picture of death. Various animal offerings in Leviticus 1 through 7 are gruesome and foreign to us. The sacrificial system comes out of the ancient Near East understanding of the needed appeasement between humanity and a given deity. God used it as a teaching tool. As it applies to the nation of Israel, it reveals a picture of bloody hope. He goes on and says some other things, but says that really, if nothing else, the Levitical system in the Old Testament reveals four things and maybe illustrates why, why Jesus was born that he might die. Point number one is God is holy. By application to God, it means that he is perfect. All that he is, says, and does is right. His actions are righteous and pure and devoid of any form of wrong. In him there is no blemishes or faults. He is without sin. Number two, God's holiness demands the penalty of death for sin. Since God is sinless, he cannot tolerate sin. It is an affront to his holiness. God decreed that disobedience to him would result in death. Number three, 
God is willing to accept a temporary death, a sacrifice in substitution for the sinner, as a picture of transference occurs when the penitent person places his hands on the head of the sacrificial animal. The animal's life symbolically is substituted in place of the sinner. In regard to the one presenting the sacrifice, it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. Leviticus 1.4 However, know that multiplied thousands of animal sacrifices will never take away a single sin. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And number four, God's grace allows a final judgment to be delayed. While the judgment of death was carried out on the animal, its application to the sinner was temporary. More sacrifices were always needed under the Levitical system. Grace was granted until a pure, eternal sacrifice was deemed worthy. In the meantime, the priest was to burn all of it on the altar, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. And so he goes through and talks about how we don't necessarily, when we think of Jesus being born in a manger, that once in the future he would actually be that ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Let's now move to a maybe more familiar passage that we do think about, and that is in Psalm 23, in which, again, he talks about the sheep and a shepherd. But he does point out the fact that um, most of the sheep that he actually had to deal with as a rancher before he became pastor, uh, seminary teacher, and president, he says, these are individuals that are, quite frankly, not very bright indeed, and tell some incredible stories. For example, he said, sheep need the presence of a shepherd because they're as dumb as a brick. He says, I have no other way of saying it. Sheep are not the brightest animals. I could tell you stories of their challenges. Once I raised a male ram named Bucky on a bottle after his mother died, and he became so aggressive that he would ram the pickup truck, repeatedly knocking himself out. Also, I can tell you stories of sheep breaking their necks in a state of panic and running headforce into trees. And there was a time five sheep stood under a tree in an electrical storm and were fried by the lightning strike. Here's my point. Sheep need help. They need guidance. They need a shepherd. Point two, sheep need provision because they cannot provide for themselves. The sheep we raised were raised for their wool because of that shearing in a timely manner was critical. To leave the wool on their bodies too long would leave them vulnerable. Heavily woolen sheep of exposed to rain and moisture will get soaked, then collapse and die. Have you ever seen a wet cotton ball? And he goes through and tells some of that story as well. And then finally, sheep need protection because the enemy always lurks. I was a modern-day shepherd when I worked the ranch. During lambing season, I would periodically camp outside the flocks to protect them from the enemy. Coyotes were always a present danger. On occasion, as I would build a fire through the night, the flock would gather around and gaze in my presence. I was a banquet of sorts that occurred throughout the evening, even as the eyes of the enemy glistened in the firelight of the night. My wife was there to protect and defend the sheep if necessary. When they were there with me, they had everything they needed. And, of course, then he reads, of course, from Psalm 23. But I thought I'd close because of the interest of time. We'll maybe look at some of these next week and also talk a little bit about the theology of Christmas carols. But I thought I would end with this one in Isaiah 9-6. It's all in a name. For us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. And he spends some time, first of all, reminding us of the tool uh, man Taylor and uh, the fact that uh, Tim Allen playing Tim the Tool Man Taylor always had this one uh, neighbor by the name of Wilson. Remember Wilson? And Wilson would give all sorts of great advice, and you never were sure whether or not he would follow that. But here he talks about the fact that we do have somebody who can actually provide us the guidance that we need biblically. And he goes through these four very important titles. Wonderful Counselor. This phrase speaks of his qualifications to rule. While we often think of a counselor in terms of one who gives guidance with problems, the phrase really means an advisor or a strategist. The strategist is wonderful and supernatural. The point of the description is that the child king would lead with wisdom far above human wisdom. He is the ultimate supernatural strategist. He is the wonderful counselor. Number two, mighty God. This description articulates the position and power. The Messiah rules in divinity as God's representative on earth. The description of might denotes force and victory over one's enemy as in battle. The point of the description is that he would fight in might for those under his reign and would be victorious. He is the mighty God. Number three, everlasting father. This explanation describes his relationship to his subjects. Christ reveals the father, but they are distinct in person. This description is metaphorical, describing his function as guardian and protector. Frequent attributes of a father. The point of the description is that one will defend and shield his own. In this sense, he is the everlasting father. And finally, Prince of Peace. This clarification explains the result of his reign. This term prince does not imply royalty per se, but one who administers something. In this case, the child king will be the administer of peace, a more appropriately wholesome and completeness. The emphasis of the name is that he will disseminate whole and complete idealness on earth, and especially to those in his command, he is the prince of peace. Well, there's 25 of these, and as you can see, I've only covered just a few even in the Old Testament. Uh, next week, we'll cover a few more even in the New Testament. But what I love about this is at the end of each one of these, he gives you an Advent application. And at the end of the Advent application, you would be surprised, like the one after the shepherds. He says the Advent application is watch the shepherd, the pilot episode of The Chosen. And then actually then tells a story about Dallas Jenkins um, and then gives you a prayer. Some of the other applications are various things that you might want to read or a particular passage. Or in this particular case, he suggests something from Handel's Messiah. But it's a wonderful book, really just an attempt to maybe in the midst of so much of Christmas, which has been taken over by consumerism and cultural Christianity, takes us back to the idea of the Advent. So I thought today maybe you would just appreciate knowing a little bit more about an Advent wreath or an Advent candle. You might want to do it in your home, and if nothing else, wanted to explain why each week we have a different group get in front of that candle and light it. Maybe now you've seen some of the significance of the Advent as we're in this Christmas season. Parker?